On this episode of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Dean Knuth, who had a long career at the USGA uh, as uh, the director of handicapping, also oversaw again uh, their computer services, the green section, lots of um, different responsibilities. Uh, but um, among his significant achievements was he really is the prime developer of the obstacle-based course rating system that we all use today, as well as the slope rating system, and that earned him the moniker the Pope of Slope. Uh, So we talk with Gene about his noteworthy USGA career and um, some of the things he's done um, post-USGA and um, in golf and um, uh, other pursuits. So up next on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, former USGA Senior Director, Dean Knuth. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I am really pleased today to welcome to the program Dean Knuth. Dean is someone who has had a long career with the USGA, with handicapping, and lots of other things in golf and in life beyond golf. So lots to talk about. Dean, thanks so much for making the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Happy to be here. Um, So maybe just to sort of go back to the beginning and give listeners some context. I know you were born in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, Maybe chat about kind of how you first got introduced to the game of golf. Uh, Well, I grew up playing baseball, not golf. And uh, was a aspiring left-handed pitcher. And the only way that I had any quality time with my dad was to play golf with him. Mm. So I, start, I started playing with him uh, typically on weekends. Um, uh, and uh, when I was 12 years old. Got it. And did you, is it, it was, it was just pretty much recreational. You didn't play. Yeah, totally much recreational. I was never good enough to be a tournament player. So. Got it. Just, but I've always loved the game. Yep. And it's it, it, which is kind of where I'm at as well. So, um, and another similarity I noticed is I'm I'm an applied math major, but you're pure math. It looks like you got a BS in math from the US Naval Academy and then got a master of science in computer systems. So you were in the Navy for a bit, right? I was. Uh, I I went one year to the Uni- University of Wisconsin on a baseball scholarship. And uh, a couple of uh, of uh, baseball teams, uh, like the Minnesota Twins, had me pitch for them. Oh, and wow. luckily, luckily, they told me that even though I had great breaking stuff, I had no, I had no heat. And so, <laughs> otherwise, I probably would have thrown away my whole career just to uh, be in the minor leagues for a while. Um, but uh, I had was fortunate that I had a perfect score, 800 on my math SAT oh, wow. uh, test. And <clears throat> and so um, one winter, I saw uh, a, a cousin who came home from the Air Force Academy, and I saw him at church, and I was so impressed with his uniform, I decided there I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, mm. uh, knowing nothing about it. <clears throat> so I applied. Uh, the congressman for my district, uh, his chief of staff called me 
one evening and said, um, we don't have any spots in the Air Force Academy, but we have one spot in the Naval Academy. Would you go there? And I had never seen the ocean. I grew up in Wisconsin, had never even right. seen it. And uh, I said, yeah, that's great. There was a TV show called Men of Annapolis, and it looked fun. So I went there and served in the Navy. And when I graduated, I I was in Vietnam War on ships off of Vietnam. And, oh, wow. Uh, and uh, eventually made lieutenant commander. And then I went to the Naval Reserves after I joined the USGA staff and, and uh, was a captain in the Navy when I retired. Got it. And, and, and I know you were decorated as well with a number of, number of awards. Um, I'm curious um, how uh, I know you, I think you sort of were a member of their USJ handicapping procedure and handicap research committees uh, in 78 before you ultimately joined the USJ staff in 81. But I'm, I'm just curious how you got to the USGA even initially from being in the Navy um, and um, and how and how you got interested in, in that aspect of golf. Sure. Uh, when the Vietnam War ended in 1975, uh, my detailer said, where would you like to go? And I said, I'd like to go to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And they sent me orders to go there, two and a half year engineering program mm-hmm. where I where I earned a master of science in systems engineering. And while I was there in the first year, it was 19, late 1975, beginning of 76, I had a graduate course called design of design of experiments. And following the textbook, you had to use a mathematical model and you had several choices, uh, collect data and make statistical conclusions based on that data. And most classmates uh, there were uh, doing things like what is the the best shading of a windscreen so that they could still see at night and and so on. But there were no limitations. It didn't have to be Navy related. So Mm -hmm. I, being a golfer, I wanted to do it on how to evaluate golf courses. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea really what I was going to evaluate. But I called the Northern California Golf Association, and they were in Pebble Beach, very close by to Monterey. And I could have just been blown off, but instead, uh, I was switched to Ron Reed, who later worked at the USGA for many years until he retired. And he said, you know, I like the Naval Plus Graduate School guys. And what's really needed is the USGA does not have a good course rating system. And it doesn't really include obstacle difficulty. What what are the factors that are important that should affect the course rating? And so he helped me get onto golf courses and I evaluated as many factors as I could see. And when I <clears throat> my ran the, the math model and what was a very, very old, I mean, now it's it's it, it was large, but very slow IBM mainframe computer. And I had to write all the code in Fortran 4, which doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to uh, develop weighted factors, uh, weighted by their importance. And things like topography, fairways, green is difficulty, green surface, uh, out of bounds, bunkers, uh, 
water, you, know, you name it, trees. And so I, I finished what I call the Knuth course rating system. And because Ron Reed had helped me out, uh, I gave him a copy uh, of my, my report that I submitted to the class. And Ron loved it. And he showed it to uh, some of the other staff at NCGA and also to their course rating teams. And they said, this is fantastic. Could you come and talk to us on how it could be done? So they set up a meeting, uh, I think it was in San Jose uh, at the Almaden Golf Club. And uh, they had about 100 course raters there. And this is now 1977. And I'm still just a lieutenant in the Navy. And I went up and gave a presentation on how this would be done and how it would be used. And they all agreed with it. They said it was terrific. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, NCGA sent a copy of my report to uh, the U.S. Golf Association. And I got a letter (laughs) from the USGA saying, we're very interested in learning more about your system. So that's how it all began. Wow. Um, so this is so neat. I mean, we have, of course, a mutual friend, Doug Sullivan, who, um, uh, you know, works with the SC, runs this part of the SCGA now. And I'm one of the course raters um, who volunteers. So I am intimately familiar with how this works now. And I've so it sounds like before you sort of introduced the obstacle stuff, how would how was course ratings determined? They were just kind of they used distance and kind of some yeah. qualitative yeah. aspects um, that, because it's so it's so analytical now, and it sounds like that wasn't always the case. No, uh, at the time, <clears throat> the uh, it was primarily distance. And whatever the length, total length of the golf course, not even factored on, on hole by hole, um, it would produce a number. And the golf association was able to adjust uh, that number up or down one shot. And in a very extreme case, it could go up two. Mm. Uh, and it was a very inaccurate yardage rating formula, um, which we refined and improved. And um, so that was when the NCGA sent a letter to the USJ saying, we don't think much of your course rating system. And we think <laughs> Knuth has a better one. And, and <laughs> unless otherwise directed, we're going to adopt his system. And that really got the USJ's attention. <laughs> I have no doubt. Um, wow. So that's um, and I and I knew I always knew you were involved with the slope stuff, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But that's interesting that that the obstacle course rating stuff is something that um, you were kind of the inventor of. So you you um, I think you sort of joined the staff of the USGA in what 1981. And boy, I have to tell you, dude, it sounds like you were at like a lot of hats on. I mean, not just handicapping, but yeah. green section administration. I mean. <laughs> right. had a lot of different uh, a lot of different well, things you were doing there right yeah well it started first with um they appointed me uh as a volunteer to their handicap procedure committee mm-hmm. and so i met all these people um one of the 
uh, leading uh, people that, well, Joe Ewan was chairman of the handicap committee of the USGA. Gordon Joe Ewing uh, lived in Illinois, is mm-hmm. a great, great gentleman. And he talked to me and then he sent a letter to Lynn Smith at Southern Cal Golf Association. Mm-hmm. And he was a legend. Uh, and he was uh, chairman of the handicap procedure committee. And they said, could you please meet with this Dean Knuth because he seems to be a pioneer in evaluating golf courses. And so uh, the USGA paid to fly me down to, um, to LA, or I think I flew into Pasadena. And I met with Lynn Smith at his home for almost an entire day. He just kept asking wow. me questions. Wow. And it wasn't until I was later on the USJ staff that I saw in the files that Lynn had written to Joe Ewan and said, yeah, he's the real deal. And <laughs> um, so in 1981, uh, the USGA uh, created the first ever uh, director of handicapping position on the staff mm. and, uh, and hired me. Wow. Um, so uh, you're at the USGA you're sort of, I guess, developing out your course rating, um, uh, obstacle course rating system, which is still how it's how it's done today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious about how all the slope rating system came into play. And, sure. and for, for listeners who aren't familiar, one of maybe one of the great nicknames I've ever heard is Dean is often referred to as the Pope of Slope which is, I just love that nickname. So, so, uh, but, but maybe talk about that and maybe explain to people. So people just to step back for a second, kind of level set for some of our listeners. So course rating is obviously a really critical part of how you determine your handicap. And, you know, there, this is varied a little bit over the years, how many scores you use and adjustments, but it's, you know, basically you're creating differentials between what you shoot and what the course rating is as opposed to par. Right. Um, and, and that enters into how you calculate uh, your handicap. But, you know, at, at this, under your guidance, now we sort of add an additional element to the mix, which is this slope rating system. So maybe kind of talk about why, you know, how that came about sure. and kind of why that's, you know, yeah. obviously in your view necessary to sort of, um, get the handicapping right sure the the course rating is is an estimate of the better half scoring average of an expert golfer mm-hmm. but it has to be an amateur go- golfer not a professional mm-hmm. so first off the usga didn't have a standard to, to base it on and uh, the usga in 1979 created a handicap research team and uh, a group of uh, eight consultants, and they put me on that committee. This before I was on staff. Mm-hmm. And so my assignment was course evaluation and trying to make handicaps portable from one golf course to the next. Mm-hmm. And with one number, you really can't do it. You can you can use the course rating as a linchpin based on scratch golfers expected score but it really doesn't translate well as the handicaps go up 18 handicapper, for example. So mm-hmm. uh, what I had proposed on this handicap research team was to set up an experiment 
of evaluating golf courses for the bogey golfer. And uh, I theorized that the bogey golfer, who's typically a 16 to 18 handicapper, um, that the if you plotted score versus handicap, that certain golf courses from starting at the course rating point, as the handicaps go up to 16 or to 18, that uh, that difference causes a steepness on the line to change. So, and that's the slope of the golf course. So as mm-hmm. handicaps go up, the scores go up at a faster rate on a very difficult golf course. Right. Uh, you know, like Los Angeles Country Club from right. this past weekend. Um, and on an easier, wide open golf course, uh, pretty flat, then uh, the scores go up at a different rate. So s- slope doesn't have anything to do with green speeds or anything like that. It's, it's, it's how fast the scores go up and with, uh, as handicaps go up and with the, the, uh, uh, bogey rating, um, and you can plot by those two points, bogey and, and the scratch rating or course rating that you can predict what, how many strokes that golfers need at any golf course, uh, based on those two numbers, the course rating and the slope rating. So, uh, to do the testing of my theories, I was in active duty, now based in, at the time, 1979 and 80 uh, and 81, I was based in Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. And I was underway quite a bit. I was gone a lot in the Navy, but I was able to talk without USJ's help. I was able to talk uh I think it was eight golf courses in the Norfolk area and from very easy to quite difficult. I think um, Kings Mill was maybe the most difficult. Right. At Williamsburg, right? They've had right. a lot of tournaments right. here over the years. Yeah. Yep. And so actually that was the first golf course that I ever both did a course rating and a slope rating on. Um, so they have that on their resume. <laughs> um, but <laughs> But I had a team of, of uh, 25 bogey golfers that played all eight golf courses, and they recorded every stroke, and they recorded, um, uh, also kept notes on what was difficult and what caused them to score higher on difficult holes. And so I, I got a great deal of data from those golfers. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I w- was connected to, um, old dominion, dominion university in Norfolk mm-hmm. and into their computer system. And, uh, from that I developed a, a bogey rating formula and I already had the course rating formula, which together could create an accurate, uh, slope rating. So the experiment went great. Uh, everybody loved it. And, um, the, the, the bogey golfers that participated were all excited. Well, when are we going to see this? Well, it took mm-hmm. a while. Um, but then, uh, at the next point, I think it was in about 1980, uh, we set up an experiment with the cooperation of the Northern Cal golf association. 
and uh, we rated, I rated several of the courses and, and recreated the same experiment, but at a lar- much larger scale. Mm-hmm. This time we, we used teams of or groups of at least 100 golfers to go to each of these golf courses. It worked out so well that um, they wanted to adopt it immediately, <laughs> which was <laughs> a good sign, but mm-hmm. uh, we weren't ready yet. So we needed to have our first golf association to go out and rate their golf courses so we could do it on a, on a large scale. So my first assignment in 1981, when I came on the USG staff, was to, to find a golf association that would do it. And not right. a massive golf association like SCGA or NCGA, uh, but one where they could get the ratings done in, in maybe in one season. So I went out to Colorado and Warren Simmons was the executive director at the time. And um, taught, I taught it to their course raters. They went out and rated, uh, I think it was 50 of their golf courses. They had at the time, I think about 110 member clubs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they did about 50. And then in uh, 82, that was all done. And in 83, uh, they started using it. And the results were fantastic. And it significantly improved uh, portability of handicaps. Being able to take your handicap to any other golf course, no matter if your golf course was easy or difficult, and to go to either an easy or difficult golf course, it didn't matter. And it, it proved that it, that it worked. So uh, by now golf associations all over the country had learned about this from the Colorado golf association and Colorado finished rating all their golf courses. And so beginning in 83, uh, six golf associations rated their golf courses and I had to go travel there and uh, teach the system to them. And, uh, and then in, I think the next year there were 15 that wanted to, uh, and then it, it followed very quickly. There were 20, uh, following year and by, uh, 1987, it was, uh, it was approved officially by the USGA and became, uh, the USGA course rating and slope rating system is part of the USGA handicap system. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So this is why I guess when I go out now and rate courses and apply the book, I'm looking at both par golfer and bogey golfer, right. For both men and women. Right. And I mean, the one thing I don't see that, you know, you were really involved in creating was sort is sort of the back end. I do all the data collection with the rest of the team and Doug, of course, you know, takes our sheets and inputs it, but but that's, I can just sort of see even from where I'm sitting that that's why I'm doing par and bogey because it's entering into the slope and course rating. Right. And then the, the other important thing was to set up a, uh, a national seminar uh, every year. And so I, I created a category of the master course rater and they received a certificate and mm. We asked for each golf association to send their master course raters once a year to a calibration seminar. And we mm-hmm. all rated the same holes. 
and came up with to make sure that there was accuracy amongst states, that uh, there wasn't a state that was more biased than another one. Now, you mentioned Pope of Slope, so I want to tell yeah, you that story. Please. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so curious how who came up with that and how. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, at one of my rating seminars. We were visited uh, by the executive director of the Argentine Gulf Federation. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's, the, I think they're called the AAG. And, uh, and his name was Vicky. That was his nickname. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Vicky said, could you come and teach this uh, to South America? And I said, sure. He says, I'll, we'll fix up everything. Uh, but we will bring in all the other golf associations in South America to Buenos Aires and we'll have translators that will translate everything that you say. Uh, they didn't invite the Brazilians because they spoke Portuguese. And so uh, it was the Spanish-speaking countries of South America, which is most of them. Right. And I uh, did a very long day because translating to Spanish kind of slowed things down. Sure. And uh, But at the beginning, Vicky got up and introduced me as the Popa de Slopa. (laughs) So the the seminar went great. And I got back home and the executive director of the Metropolitan New York Golf Association was having me the the day, the next day I was doing a presentation uh, at their uh, Metropolitan Golf Association annual meeting. And I had told him the story before the meeting started. You know, I was just in Argentina. I just got back last night, and uh, the the, uh, the executive director called me the Pope de Slopa. And so he introduces me to the crowd. His name is Jay Matola. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce to you the Pope of Slope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is something, as great a nickname as that, that is stuck, right? Yeah, it's stuck. <laughs> and Doug Sullivan, who you, uh, who you mentioned, uh, yeah. I, I hired him away from Marriott uh, to become a course raider for me on staff at the USGA. He was yeah. delightful. Yeah, he, was, he is. It was terrific. And um, I'm glad that he's at SCGA because uh, he's a good man. And uh, anyway, I think he was later the name, the Cardinal of course rating. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Haney, another person I know, you know, um, yeah. shared both of those nicknames with me a while back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And Doug, Doug has verified that since then. Um, so you're, so you're on staff all these years, the USGA and that I assume you're hanging out somewhere near Northern New Jersey, right? Where USGA headquarters are you're working out of the headquarters, I assume. Yeah, I, I worked out of headquarters in Far Hills, New Jersey. Uh, it was a very expensive neighborhood. I, yeah. I, I struggled to live nearby in Morristown, New Jersey, but I eventually was able to move to Easton, PA, uh, and uh, I lived there and had a very nice house. And it was everything across into Pennsylvania, across the Delaware, was about one third the cost of New yeah. Jersey. And plus the car insurance rates were outrageous in new jersey no yeah. fault state 
Yeah. And uh, they weren't in Pennsylvania. So everything was much le- less expensive. Uh, had a nice house. And uh, so I worked for the USJ for uh, a full 16 years. Um, and it, and it, and although you're obviously with the Pope of Slope moniker known for the cr- tremendous creative things you did in the handicapping course rating area, um, it sounds like you had a few other hats you were wearing, right? I mean, the green section and stuff. Maybe you can talk about some of that stuff. Which yeah, is sure. Interesting um, that you had a lot you had on your plate. It sounds like. Yeah, I did. Um, and just for course rating and handicapping in seminars, I was also put in charge of the gin service, G-H-I-N. Right, right. Which is most every state, not all of them, but um, uh, used by millions of golfers. And that was in its infancy. And so I became the head of the gin service. And it went from a lot of creativity going on there. It went from mailing in, uh, you know, posting sheets and processing them, key punching them and processing them, which we had, we got so big that we had to move out of USJ headquarters building and put them there. I stayed in headquarters, but, uh, but you know, they moved and to nearby uh, warehouse that was converted into uh, gin uh, being the central point. And uh, I, I was the first to have a computer that was, uh, distributed network uh, into a mainframe, mm. uh, and the mainframe was at USGA headquarters in the in the basement. It was a large IBM computer, mm-hmm. and the processing uh, was uh, was kind of amazing. The it was the very first uh, PC. Uh, well, there were some other ones that were just operated in DOS and that before, but uh, this was called IBM's PC Junior. And Mm -hmm. it was not very powerful. It would be uh, not as powerful as anybody's iPhone today. Right, right. But at the time it was kind of a marvel. And we attached a Raquel Vatic uh, modem phone uh, to the PC PC Junior and it transmitted a, a, a terrible rate of 300 baud, which is extremely slow mm-hmm. and in a fraction of what you get today. Right. I mean, at that 300 baud, it would take you five minutes to, to transmit one page. So it was pretty slow. Yeah. And so it was dialed up and that was a hit. And within a couple of years, hundreds of clubs around the country had installed that. And then of course, over the years, uh, PCs got more powerful and the modems got faster. And so that was a really fun experience and improving it. We, I created, uh, uh, a, a gin users meeting and, uh, kind of a play on words instead of G A I N, it was G H I N. Right. And, and the golf associations would, would prioritize what, what they want to develop next. And that's, I think still going on. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, then uh, Frank Hannigan was running the USGA staff after PJ Boatwright had retired and passed away, and uh, and then I was given additional duties um, 
the person that was the head administrator for the USJ's green section retired. And so I was given that position. And wow. so in addition to handicapping, so I was handicapping gin computer department. I, I installed the first internet service uh, at the USGA and created all the, the email addresses and the first website for the USGA. I did all that it was just great fun being in on the ground floor and then um, the green section was fantastic. It's uh, a group of agronomists uh, distributed around the, the country who who are really, uh, really uh, sharp people and really know golf courses. And then um, uh, we also did turf grass research and, and about a million dollars a year back then, which was quite a bit of money. Uh, yeah developing better strains of grasses. So some of the grasses that came out of the research was, for example, from University of Georgia, the um, uh, the past pollen grass, which is pretty much exclusively used in Hawaii now, and yeah. uh, many other places, a lot of clubs in Florida are using past pollen. And we paid to, to develop and improve that grass. Uh, and then uh, a few years later, uh, a man named Grant Spath from Northern California was on the USJ executive committee and he wanted us to do environmental research and, and research the impact on the environment of golf courses and turf grasses and herbicides and so on. And that was a million dollar program that, um, that was approved by the USGA and that has done a lot of good, uh, it's gotten some of the chemicals that were being used on golf courses to be banned from golf course use because it was causing uh, certain kinds of cancers. And um, so those are some very good improvements that were done in, in environmental research. And then um, for a while I ran what was, um, uh, was a, a regional affairs program and that eventually got large to the point. Oh, I created the first women's regional affairs program mm. as an extension of that, which was great in working with the USGA women's committee. We created staff staffing for, for positions. And, um, so anyway, it was just, uh, really a great experience. And then David Fay one day came in, gave me my, my annual review and he said, we're promote, promoting you to senior director. And there's only there's only two others at the USGA. So now I was, I think at one time I was in charge of 35% of the staff at the USGA. So yeah, I saw, I saw that 35% figure somewhere. And I, I mean, that's, an, that's obviously enormous, but when I see all the different portfolios you had, I can understand it because, <laughs> you know, as, as you're kind of suggesting and as for our listeners benefit, I mean, the green section, and that's a big part of the USGA. I mean, you know, yeah. most people, you know, the average golfer thinks the USGA probably thinks, okay, championships, they do handicapping and stuff. But as you're correctly pointing out, they put a tremendous amount of resources into turf, the turf advisory service, the research and the environmental aspects and right. stuff. And so that's, that in and of itself is a pretty big job. So you had, yeah. a, you had a lot on your plate to be sure. I did. It was great. Uh, I was traveling an awful lot though. I think, um, I think I was averaging 120 nights a year away from home. Oh, wow. That's and I a had lot. I had children and I was doing Naval Reserve duty, um, you know, one week in a month, which was 
difficult to do that. I was determined, though, to, uh, you know, make it to captain and to get to the point where I could retire from the Navy, which uh, which I eventually did. Right. Right. I was actually going to ask you about that. So what what did the weekend stuff to, on reserve consist of? Did you have to go to a base or something? I'm just kind yeah. of ignorant on this stuff. I'm curious what, because yeah. I was thinking about that with all the different stuff on your USGA plate. That's a big <laughs> thing to add on top of it. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of places just go to a reserve center. You know, a lot of the sailors and, well, any military that's in the reserves typically go to, but, but the, I was very fortunate because I was selected to command a, a, a reserve destroyer. So I was called the selective reserve commander. Uh, and I went from one destroyer, which we would on Friday nights, we'd get underway and be out to sea exercising the, whole, the entire crew, which had active duty and reservists and mm -hmm. for, for the whole weekend and come in Sunday night. And then from there, I, uh, you know, I would drive back home from wherever I was. And wow. then <laughs> when I made captain, I was traveling around to these reserve centers uh, all over the region that I was was in, which which was New Jersey uh, and Pennsylvania, primarily where I went in some some in upstate New York and, um, and and visiting and inspecting reserve centers. And then from there, I was promoted to be a commodore of naval coastal warfare group two which is a oh wow uh which is a deployable uh commissioned uh unit of of uh, marine of both navy and coast guard reservists in boston uh new jersey uh florida uh, new orleans uh, we had them all. I had everything west of the Mississippi, and I'd have to say that in in Desert Storm, De Desert Shield, that these units went on active duty. This is after my time, and uh, deployed and actually served as uh, coastal warfare units, uh, supporting the act, you know, active duty forces, you know, in the battle battlefront. So, uh, wow, yeah, it was it was great. Wow, that's a lot. So you're you're at the USGA. For a long time until I think around 97 right. and then um, you end up um, you know I think leaving the USGA although I know you were involved with various other aspects of them including scoring at some subsequent tournaments and the like and then um, it, 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 if I'm following it right did you then sort of come out to the west coast is that when you came to San Diego I did <laughs> so uh <clears throat> My wife at the time was uh, was very unhappy that I was gone so so much, and she wanted yeah. to go back to where she was from. Yeah, and uh, uh, we moved back to San Diego. I left the USGA. I went to work for Northrop Grumman, and they made me a, a senior director in in a classified division. I ran 150 software engineers, and. Uh, and we wrote uh, code for the uh, for the global command and control system, which is a, a classified command and control software that's still used today. Wow! And it was that was really fun. I mean, it's really yeah. exciting and working with some really sharp guys. They all had to be American citizens because they all had to have at least a secret clearance. Uh, um, 
I had a top secret clearance given, you know, given to me. And uh, so that, that was really good. And so living in San Diego, I enjoyed very much, uh, joined the San Diego country club. Mm-hmm. Beautiful uh, club, right? It's a great place and great greens. I and mean, it's Southern Cal golf association is, uh, called them the best greens in Southern Cal. There was a, yep. we have a plaque from that. And, but anyway, um, it was a, a good time, but unfortunately, uh, my ex-wife, uh, and I divorced and it turned out to be a really good thing because then I met Suzanne. Mm-hmm. We've been married for 24 years and, uh, she's an avid golfer like I am. Wow. And that's we, great. We, travel and golf and uh it's uh life is great and 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 uh, gee more than just traveling you're a member of the rna um yes. which is pretty darn cool we've had um walt driver uh former usga president sure. on who i know is also an rna member and um um talk about how did that come about and 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 what's that like i know you also and I want to talk about Royal Dornock a little bit in, in sure. traveling to Scotland. But yeah. um, talk about how you became a member of the RNA and what's that like? Well, it's it's actually I was invited. I mean, even there's I think there's about 250 Americans that can be members. And some one of them has to die if if uh, anybody new from America comes in. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's quite difficult. And you have to be known by an awful lot of members to get positive support. Right enough to satisfy uh, their requirements. But <clears throat> while I was at the USJ, I started traveling internationally. And of course, the USJ is responsible in governing the United States and Mexico. Right. But the, rest, the rest of the world comes under the RNA. Right. And uh, it's a really big task. But I started traveling all over the world. Besides Argentina, I eventually went to 40 countries. Oh, wow. And uh, they started adopting the system. And so the course writing and slope writing system. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I spent quite a bit of time helping uh, Great Britain, which used to come under an organization called Congo, Council of National Golf Unions. And anyway, an RNA member that had been following everything I was doing proposed me to be a member of the RNA. And I was from all my travels around the world. <clears throat> I was fortunate to know quite a few, I have met quite a few RNA members from around the world. And so uh, I was seconded by Arthur Rice, who was on the USJ executive committee. Mm-hmm. He lived in Boston area. He's passed mm-hmm. away. And, <clears throat> and so I was, uh, put into the membership, I think it's 26 years ago. So it's been great. I've been going there every year. It's the history is just unbelievable. Oh, I can only And the imagine. old course at St. Andrews is really so enjoyable to play and uh, made relationships with caddies. I had <clears throat> the same caddy for 20 years until he wow. passed away last year. Wow. Uh, Willie Stewart. And, uh, and so we go uh, to St. Andrews every year for at least a week. Uh, <clears throat> last last year, excuse me, 
uh, last year was the 150th Open Championship. You know, right, a very uh, special uh, tournament, Open. exactly. And it's huge. It was the biggest crowds at a at a major championship in in history. And with my, I had been a walking scorer uh, and volunteering uh, for that after I left the USGA. And because I used to run scoring operations as a collateral job in the summers when I was at the USGA. Right. And so uh, <laughs> I got to be a walking scorer last year at the Open, 150th Open. And that was fantastic. And my my first round in my group was Paul Lowry, who is Scottish, and he's a senior golfer. But uh, because he had won the Open Championship uh, prior to that, uh, he was still able to play in the Open. And it was just, it was pandemonium. It was amazing. Everybody wanted to, wanted his autograph and, and you know, Normally, players don't sign autographs when they're playing, but Paul Lowry sure did. And and doing selfies with people, and it was just he was just an amazing guy. It's kind of disruptive in sc- on scorekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> I he bet didn't, he didn't I make bet. the cut. He didn't care. No, and I'm sure it was wonderful him as a former Open champion. Of course, he's he was the beneficiary of Jean Vandeveld's um, meltdown, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, at uh, at Steve. but um, yeah, what a, that, that must have been quite a scene. I mean, last year, I mean, they had those um, former champions play. I saw Trevino playing with Tiger, and you know, and some little three four hole things before the tournament yep. started. That was really sounds amazing. And I've you know been to St Andrews, and I, I think they may be working on a, the construction of it or, or revising it. But I've that wonderful rna building that sits behind the first tee um that is not open to the public but uh <laughs> you you get to traverse it as a member of yeah. the rna so well that's the sure funny thing true. is that at the moment it, it the clubhouse is not open at all right right because i can see the construction they're doing right, right. what are they just are they just kind of restoring it or what are they well, are they the, expanding it there are quite a few m- women members of the rna now and it got to the point that this temporary locker room that they had for women members wasn't um, was insufficient, and so they decided they were going to dig out underneath. But the the men's locker room is in the basement. It's a beautiful, you know, place. But they were going to expand it out and create an official women's locker room with real lockers. And the project was going to take a year, but. Um, once you get down and digging in the ground, you find all sorts of things. I mean, any construction project. Oh, certainly a building of that age, I'm sure. And a building yeah. of that age. And with right. that mass of weight on top of it, they found that the entire foundation was ready to collapse. Oh, wow. And so they had jacked everything up, but it's taking a, a massive amount of time to uh, to restore all that. And it's a good thing. I mean, now the building can be around for another few hundred years, so. For sure. Absolutely. That is a good thing. And, you know, just you go to Scotland every summer. I mean, what a treat that you belong, you know, not just to Brewer Golf Club in the Highlands, but Royal Doorknock. I mean, uh, which was, you know, Herbert Warren Wynn and Watson and others who traversed up there a number of years ago kind of have made the world aware of it and, and 
it's a pilgrimage that every I have not had the good fortune to be there yet, but I know it's a pilgrimage that um all, anyone who makes it is just um loves it. Um that must be just incredible to be up there in the summer. You probably can play till 10, 11 at night, I imagine that far north, right? Yeah, we have played. We finished uh past 10 p.m. sometime. Um, but it all depends on the date because uh Dornick is at about the same latitude as um as Oslo, Norway. And so the days are very long in the middle of the summer, like right now. Uh, but there's not much sunlight at all in the wintertime. You right. know, it just briefly comes up and goes back down. Uh, but over the years, uh, my wife and I have played Dor- Royal Dornick a number of times. And then a few years ago, we joined the club. Absolutely love it. And, and you have to be an individual member. So she's a member and I'm a member. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now in the last few years, we've been renting out a house in Dornick for a month. And every day we either play golf or if we don't play golf, we get 10,000 steps in doing something else. And so we're, we're on the move and uh, we play. Dornick has two golf courses besides the championship course. Oh, I didn't know have another course called the Struy. Okay. And, and that's kind of amazing. It, it was in the last year, the, um, the British senior amateur championship was held and they used both golf courses for both men and women. They were holding the two championships at the same time. Mm. And so you alternated back and forth. So you had two rounds at the championship course and two rounds at the Struy. The Struy actually averaged a higher score than mm. the championship course. Wow. <laughs> it was because the greens are small and when the wind blows, um, it, uh, moves you into the tall fescue, which is pretty, pretty uh, difficult, but it's lovely. And we can play either golf course. And then we also joined another club in the Highlands called Brora. And Brora is, is a uh, James Braid course design. Oh, wow. And wow. Uh, it's on the ocean. It's about 30 minutes north of uh, Dornick. And it's been known for all these years it's had cattle and sheep grazing on the golf course. Mm. And so there, there are electric wires around the green. So when you want to go putt, you go find where the inner tube section is of the electric wires and step across and go putt and then go on to the next hole. It's just the most fun place. It's just amazing. And uh, everybody should play Brora when they're up there. And then there's other golf courses. Uh, they're fantastic. There's uh Castle Stewart, which, yep, sure. uh, which is in Inverness, yeah. you know, right yep. near the airport in Inverness. Yep. And um, I think that uh, Doak is building a second course right now. And uh, the first course is an incredible design with the best views you'll find anywhere. Um, and uh, along the big fourth, uh, the firth that goes uh, through through Inverness, and it's uh, just above it on the cliffs. And it's just beautiful, just spectacular. And um, the Cabot family, uh, Canadian um, company, uh, bought it after the owner passed away a couple of years ago. And so it's going to be called Cabot Links or Cabot. Yeah, Cabot Highlands, Cabot Highlands. And then I'm not sure what the name of the new Doke course is going to be, but it's really a place to go see when you're there. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a special place for if you're a golfer. Um, there's nothing like playing in Scotland. Um, Dean, I'll get you out here on this. I, I, you know, being honored to talk to the guy who invented so much of our modern course rating slope handicap system. Kind of where do you see it sitting now and going forward? I know we had the world handicapping system come in a few years ago. I know there's some issues you've pointed out with that. Um, and, but sort of as we sit here in 2023, where do you sort of, if anywhere, see things going forward in the whole rating handicapping system? Yeah. Um, good question. I, I'm not a big fan of the world handicap system. It's, it has problems. It's, it's par based and par everybody knows is not an accurate number. I mean, right. easy par fours and hard par fours and so on. And, uh, I think it, it adds a level of inaccuracy, uh, into the system. Uh, but they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish is have the entire world use the same system. And that's what was agreed to. I think one of the, uh, the bad features in it is, uh, is the soft cap and the hard cap. And it, I think I've found through my research and I'm trying to, uh, tell as many people as I can and, that uh, the soft cap system, and I won't go into explaining right now, and you can look it up on the internet if you're interested, but it, it's, it, it's unfair to senior golfers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've proven that. And so I don't like that. Uh, and I think that needs to be fixed. And the other thing that needs to be fixed is that uh, – I had put in section 10-3 in the USGA handicap system, which was identifying tournament scores of your most important tournaments at a club. And if somebody beat their handicap in a tournament uh, in their two in the last year by more than three shots, then their handicap uh, would be reduced automatically and uh, below what the 10 of 20 was saying. Now it's eight of 20 uh, in the formula, but tournament scores have to be brought back. I developed a tournament point system, uh, that is being used by quite a few clubs to try to deal with the golfers that are winning tournaments too many times. And it's just that two or 3%, uh, who are really, uh, uh, hurting the equity in competitions and mm-hmm. trying to deal with people that, yeah, everybody can win one, but when you're winning multiple events or you're finishing in the top five, my tournament point system uh, tells the club how much they can reduce their, their handicap for tournament play, uh, how much they can reduce it by. And so I'd like to see something like that uh, brought back into the system. Fair enough. And um, we'll look for you. You always are, you know, an interesting commentator on this stuff and, and thoughtful as always. So we'll look for more of that. And, you're going to be up at Pebble for the U.S. Women's Open, it sounds like. Scoring I, again? I am. I'm, I'm going to be at the uh, Women's Open at Pebble as a walking scorer. Fantastic. Well, I hope you get to walk with Rose Zhang. That's, you know, as a Stanford guy, I'm, um, you know, they they have, a, well, the men's team isn't bad either. They had four, as you probably know, they had four Stanford guys, you know, qualify for the men's U.S. Open. But the women's yeah. team... You know, with uh, with Rose, with Rachel Heck, with Megagane has been, you know, tremendous. And Rose is kind of obviously the leader. And uh, 
Yeah. Uh, well, be interesting to see how she does at Pebble. Rose is the real deal. And yeah. they have to fix the LPGA system that didn't give her points for winning a tour of it. Oh, I know. I, can you, <laughs> I, I she should totally be rookie agree. of the year already. <laughs> I, I totally, totally agree. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, yeah. I saw the other that. Play, the other player I would shout out is uh, Anna Davis. She's yes. At, at, she wasn't even 16, and she won the Augusta National uh, Amateur Invitational. And she's been practicing at our club, and she's just fantastic. And now she she was the low qualifier. She was medalist in qualifying um, for the Women's Open for, for down in Southern Cal, or in our area anyway. And right. uh, so right. she's going to be in the Women's Open field. And, it, and she's not even 17 yet. So she she is amazing. And it was so funny because the tournament, as you sure saw, the, the Rose's first tournament out at Liberty National in northern New Jersey was kind of a tournament where they had the juniors playing along with the pros. And there's Rose and, and Ann Davis in the in the same group on Sunday because they were in the two different divisions. And the two of them played each other, played with each other along. It's not, you know, Rose just is literally one week removed from being in college. So yeah, they're both terrific. I agree. Just yeah, absolutely it is, amazing. It is amazing. The women's game is in is in a great, great position. And I and I hope they can take advantage of having all of this um talent. Um, Dean, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, really, uh and and as a you know, lifelong golfer, I will thank you for all the great stuff you've done. Um, and, um, uh, not just as a golfer, but now as a course raider, seeing the fruits of your labor with all of the obstacle based course rating that, uh, that we now have, um, thanks for everything you've done for the game. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Good talking to you. Bye.